Hey, Advisorist Nation, you're listening to the Advisorist Podcast, the most loved podcast for insurance and financial advisors worldwide that want to grow faster, increase commissions, and build a lifestyle you love. London to New York, Montreal to Munich, Austin to Australia. Shut down distractions, get focused, grab your notepad. It's time for Advisorist. Let's do this. Hi, this is Jeremiah Demery, founder of Advisorist, and it gives me great pleasure and really it's an incredible honor to introduce to you one of the hosts of the Advisorist podcast, Michael Levin. Michael is not only a personal friend, but he's one of the most established ghostwriters in the nation and a New York Times best-selling author who's written, co-written, or ghostwritten over 550 books, hundreds of them in the financial services arena, of which 18 are national bestsellers. There's, you would be hard-pressed to find somebody that hasn't been in more outlets than Michael. He's been on Shark Tank, the New York Times, the Wall Street Journal, Forbes, Politico, the LA Times, the Boston Globe, Writer's Digest, CBS News. I mean, the guy has even had his work optioned and made for film by Steven Soderbergh of Paramount, HBO, Disney, ABC, Frank Perry, and so many more. He ghost wrote for some of the biggest names in sports and business, including Dave Winfield, Pat Summerall, Howard Bragman, former Schwab CEO, David Potrick, marketing legend, Jay Abraham, NBA star, Doug Christie, and the list goes on and on and on. And as the host of All Eyes on You, Michael will bring his unique blend of insights and wisdom as it relates to using books to get to the level of your dreams that you've always desired. They are one of the most powerful introduction tools that financial advisors and insurance agents can use today. I know when I got my book written, oh my, did the doors open up. And so that's why I'm so excited to have Michael hosting All Eyes on You as part of the Advisorist Network. Michael, take it away, my friend. My guest today is the legendary Alan Weiss, who is the number one business consultant, speaker, author, anywhere in the United States, wherever you go. Alan is the man. Summit Consulting Group is the name of the company. AlanWeiss.com is the website. His clients include Merck, Hewlett Packard, GE, Mercedes-Benz, State Street Corporation, Times Mirror Group, Federal Reserve, New York Times, Toyota, and on and on. He is a frequent keynoter. He's been a visiting faculty member all over the United States. And he doesn't just work with these massive companies. He also has written more than 60 books and 500 articles, which Million Dollar Consulting, I would say, is the foundation of his work. And he works with large numbers of entrepreneurs, business owners, individuals who are looking to become more successful and to do things the right way and not waste time and and make money and so on. And so that's who Alan Weiss is. And if you haven't heard of him, I'm very happy to bring him to you. So, Alan, thank you for taking the time. My pleasure, Michael. Good to be here. The basic question is this. In a world where there's so much competition and where the marketplace commoditizes people who do not stand out, how do you advise people to stand out or to get attention for themselves? What's the starting point? Well, you resist being a commodity by not talking or appearing like one. So that means you have to be contrarian. You have to be provocative. You can't just go with the flow. You can't be a herd animal. So you have to introduce intellectual property. IP, 
that's different, that's innovative. And that's not all that hard to do because of what you said. There's so much commodity, there are so many herd animals, that it's not difficult to stand out in a crowd these days, but you need the self-esteem and the courage to do it. Well, if I'm a financial advisor or an insurance professional and listening to this, I say, yeah, sure, there's nothing that I could possibly say that would help me stand out from the crowd. What's your response? My response is, then, you know, drive a bus. Because if you really <laughs> feel about your career that you have nothing new to say, then you shouldn't be in it, you know, because you're a prisoner. And um, the fact is, I don't want to talk to an insurance person or an investment person or even somebody as prosaic a firm as accounting who can't tell me something new, who can't tell me there are new and better ways to look at things. For example, I've co-written a book and I've coached a guy who's an expert on small business growth and small business wealth. And he says, look, don't try to minimize your taxes. It's terrible for your credit. You shouldn't try to minimize your taxes. Here's what you should be doing. He tells people that the really important thing is total days to cash, meaning that it's not how much you're charging. It's how quickly you can get your money. These are interesting concepts to think about. They, what make the book so interesting. And anybody can do this if they put their mind to it. But if you've been in a profession for a long time and you can't think of anything new, you've got a problem. <laughs> okay. So let's say you've got someone who has some new ideas but hasn't really figured out how to express them or where to express them. What's the first step? Well, you have to get into what I call the public square. And so you have to ask yourself, one, who's my ideal buyer? Who's my ideal client, my ideal buyer? Number two, what do they read? That's where you publish. Number three, where do they hang out? That's where you network. Number four, what do they attend? That's where you speak. The overwhelming research over the last 15 years or more is that executives and business owners buy from peer-to-peer reference. They don't buy from advertising, from the Internet, because that's where you do look for commodities. But they buy professional services through peer-to-peer reference. And Jonathan Berger over at Wharton School, who is my guest speaker at one of my events, he's written Contagion and Visible Influence, he points out that only 4% of peer-to-peer influence occurs on the Internet. All the rest is interpersonal. And so you've got to get onto those radar screens. You've got to be saying things differently, networking, speaking, publishing, so that people can hear you. Give me an example of a client who took your advice. You don't have to give me a name, but just sort of the person came to you and heard all this and said, okay, I'm going to do that. Where do they network? Where do they publish? Where do they speak? Well, I'll give you an example of a woman who came to me making six figures and today is making a very healthy seven figures. Instead of being a thought leader in sales, she became an expert in sales and then the expert in sales. She speaks at major conferences for executives, not for salespeople around the world. She deals with Fortune 50 companies and helping them to strategize and realign their sales forces. She publishes in publications that these kinds of buyers read. And let me just take a moment to point out, you're better off in a newsletter that reaches 500 of your true buyers put out by a trade association than publishing in some magazine that goes to 50,000 people, none of whom are your buyers. And all these people bragging about the fact that they blog for Forbes.com or one of these magazines you hear about all the time on the Internet, it doesn't matter, you know, because <laughs> there's so much noise there. Everybody's doing that. So those are the kinds of things she's done. I mean, we could take the rest of this interview with me citing examples like that. But the fact is that you have to have the willingness to do this. You have to have what I call the courage of your talent. And if you sit around saying, well, there's nothing new for me to say, well, then, you know, you might as well go down the street and sit in the park with the squirrels. <laughs> you made a distinction when you began that story about this client. 
between thought leadership and being an expert? What's the difference between a thought leader and an expert? Well, thought leaders have a lot to say about their profession, and they're fairly well-known, but the true expert is someone who becomes an icon. The true expert is cited. They're talked about. I am the expert in solo consulting. Marshall Goldsmith's the expert in corporate executive coaching. And when you talk about people like us, we've published a lot of books. We are featured speakers wherever we want to go. People come to hear us and pay a lot of money, and other people cite us. Some people take shots at us. And one of the things about someone who's reached a very high status in the profession is that people at lower levels who are insecure shoot at you. It's a sign of success. And so you can usually, you know, name a profession, Michael, that has a lot of thought leaders, but there's often just one real designated person who's the expert. There are a lot of thought leaders in strategy, but uh, Drucker was the expert. So if I want to go from thought leadership status to icon status, what's the path? First of all, let's take it in two dimensions. The content dimension is you have to produce new IP every week. You have to be putting IP out on your blog, on your publications, and your speeches, and everything every single week so that people are enthralled by what you're putting out there. Not everything will appeal equally to everyone, but some of it will appeal somewhere to somebody. And so the content has to be new and fresh and also based on the times. My Monday morning memo this week was about the fact that the traditional places where we picked up values and ethics which were the schools and the churches and businesses and the family dinner table and so on, they've all disappeared. And that's why we're so uncivil today. That's why we're so rude and crude today. These are kinds of things I put out every week. That's the content side. From the process side, we have to shamelessly promote. We have to tell people, I can help you. We have to say to people, here's what my best clients do. And we have to be absolutely fearless in showing people that we have a good way and a better way to do things. Now, when you talk about timeliness, you're saying weekly is the best frequency for getting your content out there? No, I said I do something weekly, but I do oh, things do weekly. I do them monthly. I do some certain things annually. But in a given month, I have a Monday morning memo every week. I have Balancing Act, a free newsletter every month. I have Million Dollar Mindset, a free newsletter every month. I have Writing on the Wall, a free video, comes out every month. I have The Uncomfortable Truth, a podcast that comes out every week. I have the word of the week, which comes out once a week. I'm on my blog every day. I blog every single day on two different blogs, one public, one private. I mean, I can go on and on, but that's the amount of content I put out. Even in my position at this stage of my career, I still generate all that. Why do you do that? Because I love it and because <laughs> it's a great life. The listener is saying, how does he have the time to do all that? It doesn't take that much time. It doesn't take that much time. If you organize yourself well, it doesn't take that much time. I mean, the Monday morning memo is basically a paragraph or two, and it takes me about 10 minutes to create. I mean, if you're spending an hour, you're a writer, if you're spending an hour to write three pages, there's something wrong with you. <laughs> there's a lack of confidence in, uh, in what you're writing. Well, what happens is people self-edit, and they'll write, hey, look, there were four great ways to innovate. And then they'll say, well, wait, wait maybe there were six or seven. And before you know it, there's nothing on paper. And so you cannot self-edit in your speech or in what you write. You have yeah. to be, go boldly forward. That's what experts do. People who are not experts continually criticize themselves. Now, the Monday morning memo that you mentioned, or one of the, one of the, the, the piece that you mentioned was about the lack of places where values are taught and learned. Now, that does not reflect directly to solo consulting, does it? No, I want to be an object of interest. 
And so I'm putting things that are interesting out there, and that's a good catch that you made, so that people see me. I'm visible. My brand is strong, and everybody knows about me. They say, look what this guy's talking about. And eventually, it'll get around to my expertise. That's fine. So what I hear you saying is that to be a thought leader, you have to spend at least a little bit of time thinking. Yeah. Well, you have to be a leader, and you have to have thoughts, right? (laughs) You can't just sort of stand there and say, I'm a thought leader, but you're not doing any thinking. Well, that's right. I mean, that's why we have so few thought leaders in politics. None of these people are thinking. They're just screaming all the time. That's not really a great role model, I guess, for what you do. So, what, Well, so I'll, you, I'll tell you something. I can name you some excellent business executives, but I can't name you any statesmen right now. That's really true. We have no lack of pretenders, that there's nobody out there who says Churchill or Reagan or whomever no, you like. No, that's right. There are no statesmen out there, and they're all politicians, and that's because they're all yabbering, yabbering, yabbering to get elected. But none of them is standing up as an expert, as a leader, as an icon who people want to follow. Now, you've got some candidates. We're early in the cycle. You've got some candidates who are putting out policies. But Elizabeth Warren is putting out policy statements left and right and she can barely get arrested. And then you've got Beto. We don't know what he stands for. We know what he stands on. He's standing on a lot of tables in restaurants in Iowa and New Hampshire, but we have no clue what he stands for, and it seems as though he's got much more traction than she does. When you don't say much, it's hard for people to be against you because they don't know what you stand for. Elizabeth Warren, who's having a great deal of trouble raising money right now, is having problems because people do know what she stands for and not a lot of them like it. And if you ask Elizabeth Warren or Bernie Sanders or any of the rest of these people how they're going to pay for these programs, they don't know. And the American public isn't stupid. And so if you go and have some kind of approach where airplanes don't fly on fossil fuel and everybody has a minimum wage and so forth and so on, no matter how well your intentions, if you don't figure out how to pay for it, it's not going to happen. And every time you say, where is the money going to come from? They say the same thing. Well, we're going to eliminate waste. That's their problem. There's no real leader here. Kennedy said, we're going to put a man on the moon, and we're going to do it in 10 years. And even after he died, it came true because he put in place what he had to put in place. Now, to take this back to the people you work with, in my experience, people get excited about putting themselves out there, and then they draw back because they're so concerned about what their colleagues and peers are going to say that they're not focused on their audience. Do you see that? I do. Consultants tend to have very low self-esteem and it holds them back. They use the wrong metrics, which are other people's metrics. But most of all, they care what people think, and you should never care what people think. You know, I've been doing this a long time. I have never, ever, ever read a feedback sheet from a speech I've made. People have handed them out and collected them and so forth. I don't read them. I never will read them. I only listen to people whose opinion I ask. If I respect some people and I want their opinion, I'll ask them. But I never take unsolicited feedback because it's always for the sender, never the recipient. Is this something you teach your clients? All the time. Do they you follow know, people you? People who complain the most are usually your worst clients. Oh, for sure, because they're not perceiving the value in what you're offering. Well, not only that, I mean, your best customers give you the benefit of the doubt. They say, this didn't work, can we fix it? Your best customers spend a lot of money. Your best customers give you referrals and references. Your worst customers always want a deal. They want something for nothing. They complain because things aren't perfect. You know, the customer's not always right. I mean, it's a fallacy. And so I tell my clients to triage their customers. You have your best customers, your average customers, your worst customers. Stop paying attention to your worst customers. And they'll go away. And they'll go away, which is what you want. But if you enable them by listening to them, they don't get to be better customers. They just get to be more frequent, worse customers. I like that a lot. And it's something that uh, we've talked about, and it's something that I try to do. 
Let's come back to the, the idea. You've got all these different venues that you've created for disseminating your ideas, either in words or on video. What advice do you give to your clients? Where should they start in terms of, is it a blog, is it a newsletter? And then how do they get attention and traction for what they're putting out? Do what you're best at first. You know, when I got fired in 85, I could write and I could speak really well. And today I'm still writing and speaking. I don't like to network. I hate to schmooze, so I didn't do that. And so if you like to write, you like to speak, you like to network, you like to host events, you like to do a variety of things, go with what you're really good at at first because then it's not onerous. But if you're not good at any of them, then get into another line of work because that's how you market. <laughs> if, you, if you're not networking and you're not speaking and you're not writing, then you're just not going to find clients is what you're saying. Yeah, I mean, you know, you should be a government official somewhere. You should run for president. Well, no, I mean, you should be in the Department of Motor Vehicles. Okay. Stamping uh, forms. Then you get seven-minute bathroom breaks. There are worse things. So we've talked about the writing. Let's talk about speaking. How do you guide your clients toward getting speaking? Well, the best way is to write a book and use the book as your leverage point to get speaking assignments. People love to have new books for authors uh, that author on their agenda. But you can go to a speaker's bureau. You can go to trade associations. You can even go to private companies that have you know, a variety of meetings during the year, and you can appeal to them. There's a raft of ways to do this. There's a publication called National Trade and Professional Associations of the United States, and there's Columbia Books. It's online, and it's also hard copy. And it tells you what something like 10,000 trade associations are doing every year in terms of how many meetings they hold, what their themes are, what their budget is, and so forth and so on. And so you go to things like that as a reference, and you start to make inquiries. And you want to look at it from the perspective of the meeting organizer, which is that they're desperate to find interesting new talent to get up and speak instead of you saying, who's going to want me? Well, you have to have the confidence to say, I've got a lot to offer. Instead of saying, God, they'll never want to hear me. That's right. I mean, it's all about attitude. Do you teach confidence and attitude? Yeah, I teach people's higher self-esteem. I just signed a contract for my next book last week, and it's called Fearless Leadership. Congratulations. Tell us about it. Thank you. Well, it's, a, it's a book about the fact that we go around afraid. We go around scared, even leaders. And we've got to exercise this fear out of our lives. And there are ways to do that. You know, Procrastination, for example, is a form of fear. And so we've got to get fear the hell out of our lives so that we can go ahead and do the things we have to do. Can you give us a sneak preview? What are the piece of guidance that you're going to provide in the book in terms of getting rid of fear? Well, it's, I mean, it's a 200-page book, but I'll give you one idea. You have to face your fears, and you have to be willing to fail. I mean, if you're not failing, you're not trying. What most people fear the most is a bruised ego. And so you have to stop worrying about being perfect. Perfect is the enemy of excellence. And so what you have to do is to give it your best, knowing that you'll fail sometimes and have the resilience to bounce back. But most people instead are very conservative and try never to fail. And hence, you know, that's like the prevent defense in a football game. It doesn't really help you at all. Have you seen people move from a state of fear and terror about speaking or writing or getting out there to a state where they're able to do the things that are necessary in order to grow their business? Of course, all the time. What do you whisper in their ear? I don't whisper anything in their ear. I show them what their behaviors are and where appropriate, where their behaviors have to change and how to change those behaviors. You know, it's all based on observed behavior and empirical evidence. It's not based on, you know, some Tony Robbins Island in the middle of the Pacific where you tell yourself you're your own best friend. You know, <laughs> it doesn't work that way. What are some of the self-defeating behaviors you coach people out of? Well, what I mentioned is self-editing, constantly trying to recreate something that's better and better and better. Another is using the wrong metrics. 
and therein you use somebody else's metrics instead of your own. So you say, well, I skied down the hill, but it was a blue hill, and they're skiing on the Black Diamond, which is a much better hill. Who the hell cares? I mean, use your own metrics. Some people say, well, I wrote a book, and it sold 10,000 copies, but it's no bestseller. They're using the wrong metrics. They're not supposed to be James Patterson. They're supposed to be putting out a book that will help get business, and people do it all the time every day. 10,000 copies in today's world is an awful lot of copies. Well, but it's still not James Patterson, is it? No, and it's not necessarily as useful as sticking 200 copies of your book into 200 envelopes and mailing them to 200 prospects and saying, hey, read my book, it's going to help you. And then they Well, that depends, because if you do that cold, the likelihood is that book's going to get tossed out. You need some kind of uh, entree point to do that. But you're talking about metrics. I'm talking about metrics here. And the fact right. is that you can't say to yourself, uh, 10,000 is disappointing or is crazy good, unless you know what your expectation is and if it's realistic. When people come to you, when they bring you on board as a consultant, what are they looking for? I saw somebody on your website was up by 25%, someone else is up by 10x. What do you offer? What do you promise people? I don't promise them anything. All I do is tell them that you know I'm the greatest entrepreneurial coach in the world, and I will do my level best to help you achieve reasonable goals and objectives. If somebody says, hey, I want to make, you know, I made $100,000 this year, I want to make a million next year, I'm not going to tell them I can help them do that. They might, but it's unreasonable. All I do is give them my best efforts to help them. I can't guarantee results, and people have to want to be helped. You know, I can't help people who don't want to be helped, and I can't help people who don't use what I tell them. So that part of it's on them. And if people are willing to accept that, they usually do very well. What does an engagement with you look like? Depends. If it's an individual and it's me personally, it's usually my coaching program, which is nine months. I give assignments. We usually talk weekly by phone or Zoom or Skype or whatever. Email is unrestricted access. We might meet once or twice, depending upon geography. And that's an individual one-on-one relationship. I also have growth cycles where people get together in groups of six or eight or ten around the world. And three of those meetings I attend. They also have access to me. You know, we have a meeting coming up in Vietnam. We have another meeting coming up in Dubrovnik. We have another meeting coming up in Sicily, for example. And then I also put on very high-end events. I have a thought leadership session in Palm Beach. My million-dollar consulting convention is next week outside of Washington. I do something called a master class in Newport uh, once a year. So it depends what kind of relationship you want to have. And then what about for kind of blue-chip companies that I listed at the top of the podcast? With a couple of exceptions, long-term clients who I really like, I don't work corporately anymore. I've done that. I had a great success, but I don't need that anymore, and I don't want the politics, and I don't want to travel. So right now people come to see me, and that's the way I like it. Once again, it's a question of time. There are 168 hours, I think, in a week, and it sounds as though you've got a schedule that would require many times that. I work about 20 hours a week. I seldom do anything on a Friday. I take a lot of vacations every year. It's very easy to do if you're time efficient and you're not verbose. You know, a lot of people, instead of asking a question, start to make their cognitive process, you know, articulatable. They start to tell me what they're thinking. I don't care what you're thinking. Ask me a question. And I train people to do that well and to be brief. And uh, people just don't use time well, but, you know, I certainly do. And why nine months? Well, I felt that we needed enough time for some trial and error. We needed enough time to show that there was no pressure on the person to start to do things. They had plenty of time to implement. And then I also wanted time to exploit success. So it wasn't just enough for them to say, hey, this worked, I got a sale. I wanted them to be able to exploit the success, and nine months seemed like the right time. I mean, could it have been seven or ten? Sure, but it doesn't matter. 
Okay. Do you ever fire clients? Yeah. What causes a client firing in Alan Weiss's world? Well, if somebody really doesn't want to be helped, then I'm not going to waste my time trying to help them. If somebody is going to be engaged in something that I don't think is legitimate, like multi-level marketing, which is a Ponzi scheme, I won't go forward with that. If people don't take responsibility for their actions and keep telling me, no, 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 it was the prospect, it was the prospect, it wasn't me, there's no sense going down that road. So when people act irrationally like that or act dishonestly, I mean, there's no reason to stay with them. Makes sense. We've talked so far about getting moving in the writing world. We've talked about getting on the speaker's platform. We haven't talked that much about how to get started networking. What guidance do you offer in terms of getting going networking? The best thing to do is to go to events where people aren't expecting networking. And here's what I mean. If you go to a trade association meeting, people are expecting networking. But if you go to a fundraiser for the Red Cross or the United Way or for the local symphony or the local regional acting company or whatever it happens to be, some cause, you're going to find movers and shakers. You're going to find people on the board of directors. You're going to find major donors. You're going to find supporters. And a lot of these people are the executives or business owners who are your clients. And the idea there is to meet them and simply connect to the extent that it makes sense to do some follow-up with them and they, they're willing to take your call. And when you call them, what are you offering or saying or doing? Well, when you're talking to them at the event, somebody says, I'm the executive vice president of this, I'm the general director of that, and you say, you know something, I've had clients in the same field, I have best practices I've gathered from those clients, I'd love to share them with you. This isn't the time or the place, how about if I call you Thursday at 10? And when you call them Thursday at 10, then you say, when's a good time for me to stop by so I can show you what I've got, give you some of these things. And then you talk and you listen. This is a relationship business. So you don't try to make a sale. You try to develop a trusting relationship. It sounds great, and it also sounds time-consuming. You keep saying that, you know? <laughs> I mean, your language is everything is time-consuming. It's not time-consuming. It's going to an event for an hour or two in an evening, maybe twice a month, and then following up four or five contacts with a five-minute phone call, and then going to visit them. You know, I really don't see why that's time-consuming. Most people are spending ten times that amount on Facebook, which is as big a time dump as I've ever seen. I guess I'm coming from the perspective of the listener who's saying, I'm already working 60 hours a week. When am I going to find the time to get to the United Way? When am I going to find the time to drop by somebody's office at 10 o'clock? There's no possibility of an immediate sale. I hope everybody listening listens to this next statement very carefully. Anybody who's working more than a 40-hour week either is terribly inefficient at their job or has a job that's structured ridiculously. Nobody should be working more than 40 hours a week, if that. And so you can carve out time to do other things. I'm also going to tell you what real wealth is. Wealth is not money. Money is simply fuel. Wealth is discretionary time. So the ability to do what you want when you want is really wealth. And that's what you should be thinking about. Not working harder, not working more hours a week, but looking at your life strategically and saying, where do I want to go with it? Alan, I know you're on the board of a lot of arts organizations and charitable organizations. And so I guess it's uh, partly because you love those things and partly because it's a good place to uh, meet the kind of people you want to meet. Well, it is. It's also very frustrating because, you know, nonprofit boards are horribly inefficient, but such is life. Well, you do what you can. Last question. I know you love fine automobiles. What are you driving these days? Well, I've got an interesting garage. I have a, a Rolls-Royce Dawn, which is a new model, a convertible, which is fantastic. We have a Bentley GTC Speed, which is a ferocious beast. And then I have a Corvette Z06, 
which weighs about as much as the door on one of those cars, but has 650 horsepower and is wow. a seven-speed manual. The next generation Corvette, this next year's Corvette, will only have automatic shifts. You can't get a Ferrari with an automatic shift, which is why I stopped driving them. You can't get a McLaren, a Lamborghini with an automatic, with a stick shift. They're all automatic. I've got a seven-speed manual Corvette with 650 horsepower, and it looks like I'll be keeping that for some time. AlanWeiss.com is the website. Alan, thank you so much. I really enjoyed this. I'm sure the listeners are going to get a lot out of it. Thank you so much for taking the time today. Thanks for asking me, Michael. I had a great time. Hey, Advisors Nation, are you ready to take your insurance or financial services practice to the next level? And are you prepared to fill your calendar with high quality appointments and bring so many leads that you get to pick and choose with whom you're going to work with? If yes, then be sure to check out Advisorist, a premium members-only community of insurance and financial advisors who are striving to excellence. Inside this community, you'll learn the strategies and tactics that most successful service providers are using, and you'll be able to implement them and see results faster than you ever thought was possible. Get all of the details here at advisorist.com forward slash membership. That's advisorist.com forward slash membership advisorist.com forward slash membership. We'll see you inside. You could be larger.